everyone, and welcome to issue 18 of Hey, That's Comics. As always, I am your host, Gary Webb. It's been a while, guys. Since last we spoke, I had all my income frozen for nearly a month, a child had major surgery, and we're still working on getting her home. And, I mean, if I'm being honest, the money thing's kind of what killed the show for a bit, but we're on our way back to normal, or what passes for that now, so I'm back. Probably going to be every other week for a bit until I'm stable enough to, you know, ready enough for a weekly show, but that is definitely the goal. This is something that I've really missed. Now, on tap this week, we've got just one topic in the soapbox as I give you my take on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Then, as I'm just getting up and running again, the poll's going to be a bit small this week, but we've got Flash Forward number 5, Ruins of Ravencroft Sabretooth, and we're going to catch back up with Excalibur number 5 in this week's X-Watch. Then, in the comic club, we're diving into the 2015 event Secret Wars by Jonathan Hickman. Now, uh, uh, contrary to my initial plans, we're not going to do the entire event. We're just going to look at the core series for right now because I'm eager to get this going and I need to have something here to talk about. And as I've said, we'll be getting back to looking at as much stuff as we can as soon as I can, but I'm thinking we've got some good stuff on deck tonight. Maybe you disagree and think I should focus on other things. If so, reach out about that or anything in the world of comics at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can email me at heythatscomics at outlook.com or you can click that link in the show notes and leave me an audio message that I can play on air and incorporate it right here into the show. I want to say thanks again for coming to get down and nerdy with me. And with that, let's kick things off with Slade's Soapbox. Slade's Soapbox. Alright, so let's talk some crisis. We've talked about it over and over at this point. I mean, I'm sure you remember every time we get some new casting news of who may cameo, who might be in it. You know, I was bringing it up. This is something that I've really been excited and looking forward to. So I'm sure you figured we'd be diving into it now that it's actually come out and come to pass. I think that just as a top-level view of the whole thing, they pulled it off. And honestly, they did so better than I expected they would. No, this wasn't a direct adaptation of the seminal event, but they gave everything their own CW spin while doing the source material justice. They managed to do a cosmic level event on television, and despite the budget not necessarily being where the story needed it to be in some spots, it blew me away. Now, as I mentioned, I've spent forever going on and on about the cameos from throughout the history of DC's televisions and such that, that, that they were bringing in, and I liked the way they were handled in for the most part. Mostly, they were contained into brief glimpses as the worlds were being destroyed. They not only gave us some awesome fan service moments, but it really worked to build up the multiverse, which, which of course is such a pillar of the publishing side. Now, as I said, most of them were blink and you'll miss it, but the ones they actually devoted some time to led to some of the coolest bits of the crisis. The Supermen were great. I mean, they were definitely highlights of the show. I mean, seeing a depowered Clark from Smallville living a life of peace and contentment was fitting for the character. I mean, despite, you know, Lex being almost affronted that he'd given up his powers, and it was great to check in on that world. But the real breakout character in this whole thing, at least in my view, was Brandon Ralph playing Superman once again. We spent quite a bit of time with Ralph at this point, having played the Atom for years at, at this point, but him in the dual role of Superman is something else entirely. It very much reminds me of Christopher Reeve's ability to really differentiate the character, and that's clearly been an influence on him here. 
And the fact that they did this and used this to make give their spin on the Kingdom Come Superman, who had everybody he loved killed at the Daily Planet in a Joker attack, and yet he's still that beacon of truth. And it's a shame that his role was cut due to Luther, who we'll get to here in a bit. Now, I'll admit, an even darker take on The Dark Knight Returns with Bruce going full heel wasn't what I was expecting from Kevin Conroy's long-awaited debut, but I have to admit that from the first line when he called the Luke from the stairs, I got chills. I'm disappointed that I didn't get the take that I was hoping for here, but Kevin is Batman to me, and the fight, if you want to call it that, with him and Kate aside, I thought he excelled as always, and hope we see him again at least in some other universe. Now, before we dive into the core cast and story, I have to give a special props to Tom Ellis, who, despite claiming he would not be in it and had just been stopping by to see friends, was residing on Earth-666 as Lucifer. Now, as always, he owns the role, and as this was pre-his own series in his timeline, I like the take on the character where he hasn't been, you know, as mellowed out as he as we've seen come through throughout, the, throughout his run. And I can only hope and pray that we are getting more Lucifer Constantine content because those two together are pure gold the way they go back and forth. But, I mean, again, that's, this is all the bonus stuff to the event itself, which was pretty awesome too. Now, we've got the Anti-Monitor who is systematically destroying the multiverse with a wave of antimatter energy. Our Arrowverse heroes can't stop it, as we see in Part 1, when Supergirl's world is destroyed, all of them fleeing to Earth-1, which is the home of the Flash and Green Arrow. The fact that they are overwhelmed by the Shadow Demons and are defeated this early is kind of a given, but the shocker of the episode was the death of Oliver Queen. Now, we've known since last year's Elseworlds that he was fated to die in the crisis. Now, that being a given, they took him off the board at the very start. Now, it definitely caught me off guard, but it kind of rang hollow, which makes sense as immediately following his death, Sarah Lance and his daughter Mia grab Constantine and make for a Lazarus pit. They revive the body, but the soul won't return with them, instead choosing to follow Jim Corrigan, who, who's important. We'll get to that in a second. Now, while they're doing this, our other heroes are trying to track down the Paragons, the beings from across the multiverse who embody key attributes who are the only ones who have a chance to stop the Anti-Monitor. This is where we get some of our bigger cameos, but perhaps more importantly in the grand scheme of things, at least in the Arrowverse, we're introduced to Ryan Choi, who in the comics goes on to be the Atom after Ray Palmer, which lines up given that Routh is moving on after the season. Now it's also around this time we get the fulfillment of the prophecy that we've been racing towards since the very first episode of The Flash, as it's time for him to vanish in crisis. Their attempts to stop a machine directing the antimatter wave instead speed the process up, leaving only one option to stop the instantaneous annihilation. The Flash must race faster than ever before and overload the machine. Here, though, fate is somewhat thwarted as John Wesley Shipp, playing his Barry Allen from the 90s TV show, uses some tricks he's picked up to steal our Barry's speed. Something that's usually more associated with Wally in the comics, but I'll go with it and he takes on the fate, apparently dying in the effort. It's a well-done moment as we hear the old theme and see his great love Tina flash in there before he disappears in his blinding flash. It's not the first time the ship has died on the show, so we may yet see him again, but this was definitely a nice ending for his character. Now, not long after that, it's revealed that Lila, John Diggle's wife, 
Harbinger is under the Anti-Monitor's control now, and as the last of the dimensions are erased and all is consumed, Nash Will's pariah sends the Paragons outside of time and space to the vanishing point to get them away from the Anti-Monitor before he can just destroy them like he just did the, the Monitor himself. Or at least that's what he tries, but unfortunately, Lex Luthor still has that reality-controlling book from Elseworlds, and he's written himself into Ralph Superman's place as the Paragon of Truth. Now, when, when news first broke that Two and a Half Men's John Cryer was going to be playing Lex in a few episodes of Supergirl, I have to admit, I was a bit hesitant. I'm really big on Michael Rosenbaum's take from Smallville, but other than that, I've never really gotten behind a live-action Luthor. I'm very much a post-crisis guy, so Hackman's version just didn't align with my Lex. It was clearly based on his original characterizations, but man, Cryer is just killing it. He manages to capture all of what I think about when I think of Lex, from the suave businessman to the maniacal bad guy to the genius scientist, depending on the mood in the scene, and he does it with such glee that I absolutely love it. But here he is, potentially dooming the multiverse, but instead, he rises to the occasion. So at this point, our heroes plus Lex are stuck in the vanishing point. The Anti-Monitor can't get to them, but they can't get out. They've been here for some weeks. Kara, though, is still carrying around Clark's cape for some reason, with Barry not being able to go fast enough to get them out. Ollie then shows up, now the vessel for the Spectre, who we've talked about before, but if you're not that familiar with it or missed those discussions, just think Hand of God's power, and you're in the ballpark. He powers up Barry, who has one last meeting from the multiverse as we get our biggest surprise of the event. Ezra Miller, the DCEU's Flash, got in on the crisis fun. I mean, it was a really cool moment as the two Barrys nerded out and seeing the relatively inexperienced Miller in comparison to Gustin, who's grown so much over the years, was awesome to see. And the fact that this is something that we almost didn't get blows me away because it's such a cool moment. Uh, as I found out the, a couple days ago, they actually had wrapped production. They had the episodes all completely done, and then Warner Brothers contacted Greg Berlanti, and they're like, hey, we want to get Ezra in there. Can you make it happen? And he, of course, is like, get the Flash, DCEU's Flash in here? Yes. So they made it happen. Not even most of the cast knew this was going on at the time. So, I mean, it's a really cool thing, and it, it just... it. It proves that everything's connected, even as tenuous as that may be. I mean, that's the concept of which the DC Multiverse is built on, and I'm so thrilled to see it here in live-action form. But okay, from there, our heroes escape back to the dawn of the Anti-Monitor, and we get another battle with the Shadow Demons, while Ollie goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Anti-Monitor. While wrestling with him, light erupts from within Ollie, and the Paragons basically wish the Multiverse back into being. I mean, it's a bit thin, but there aren't a whole lot of easy fixes to, you know, recreating a multiverse. So we're just going to let that one slide. But really, I mean, this act, like Tony's sacrifice in Endgame, only on an even grander scale, if that's possible, is what finally ends the story of Oliver Queen. The flagship, the standard bearer of the Arrowverse, gave his all to save everyone, and this death felt right. I mean, I can't just ignore how odd it was to have our grounded, street-level hero suddenly supercharged and wrestling with gods, but as long as you're willing to accept through that and the power of the Spectre transitioning him to here, this was a great send-off. 
Now, of course, there are two more episodes of Arrow, one of which we know is the backdoor pilot for Green Arrow and the Canaries, which will follow Oliver's daughter. So maybe we'll get another moment with Ollie before we're through, but if not, I'm happy with how it ended. Now, obviously, going in knowing that Ollie was going to die, that, I mean, that didn't really get me in the feels. But what really got to me out of the whole thing was David Ramsey's John Diggle and his reaction to having not been there when Oliver died, not once, but twice. The passion and emotion on display was almost visceral. I could feel it. And it was just such a powerful moment. Now, the final chapter was as legends as legends can be as we're introduced to the new status quo. Our Arrowverse all call Earth Prime home now as their worlds have merged and even the way that Lex used the power to place himself at the top of the food chain can't dampen their spirits while they deal with a decoy Bebo gone amok. This is nothing more than a, you know, a blink and you'll miss an encounter with no real relevance, but it buys us time until we get the one last final battle with the Anti-Monitor, but they manage to shrink the problem away as we close on perhaps the most fan service of fan service as they're all gathered at the abandoned Star Labs facility that looks exactly like the Hall of Justice, inside of which hangs Ollie's costume and memoriam, and we see THE table with each of our heroes having a designated chair as we finally get the Justice League, in form if not yet named. And then there's one last cameo as they're interrupted by a strange noise coming from off in the distance. And we pan up to the cage of an escaped monkey, Gleek, from the old Super Friends cartoon. They really tried to hit everything and bring in everything they could in this that crossover. And that's what made it so special to me. I love the history. I love seeing all the touches. Of course, the event wasn't perfect, but with the ambition they went with here, truly impressed me. And Greg Berlanti and company have a lot to be proud of. I could go on more and more about how much I love this crossover, but that's not what we're here for. That's not the name of the show. The name of the show is about comics. So why don't we move on to what I read this week in the Weekly Poll. The Weekly Poll. So we're back for the penultimate issue of Flash Forward from Scott Lobdell and Brett Booth, and I have to admit, I'm dreading next month's issue. As I've said before, Wally is my Flash, and it's been great seeing him on this journey, but from what I'm hearing, there really isn't a game plan for what comes next. At least, not in the format like this, dedicated to Wally, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it while it lasts. Issue 4, which we didn't cover, saw our cross-dimensional hero encounter an alternate version of the love of his life, Linda Park, before ending up on the planet where Iris and Jai are stuck. The stage is set by the orchestrator of West's journey, Tempest Fugonaut, breaking down the situation to a chair. It's not just any chair, though. Rather, it's the seat of the new god Metron, who is the god of knowledge. The father is finally reunited with his children, but there's no time for rejoicing as things are coming to a head with the dark multiversal energies that Wally's been battling across the multiverse. Iris urges her father to run, but by God, he's been to the ends of the multiverse and back in his desperate hunt for them, and there's no way he will let them go again, despite the very planet fighting to keep them there. Wally leads the way as Iris shares her speed with Jai as they bicker back and forth, but as I said, the planet itself and its dark energy is against them as they're enveloped by it. Wally is again lost to an unbelievably vivid vision of a time shortly after the twins were born before managing to break free. 
He lashes out at Tempest, not appreciate having come so far, and yet he's still cut off from the kids, and there's no way he'll destroy this planet with his kids on it. He attempts to use the staff, as he has on the other planets, to fight back the dark matter, but that's the very essence of the world, and it has no effect. Here, Wally surpasses even himself as he pushes himself beyond all boundaries, moving faster than the Speed Force itself, attempting to battle back the dark with the light he generates. His attempt is halted, though, as he's confronted by the chair which he throws himself upon to gain the knowledge of all. But sometimes, knowledge isn't heartening as we find out why this planet that refuses to fade back into the dark as the others do can only be destroyed by Wally. It sprang into being in the moment when he was overwhelmed by his greatest fear, losing Iris and Jai at, there at the moment of the flashpoint. It's all his fault, it's in, and it's infecting the universe, causing such havoc and devastation it needs to go, but not at the cost of their lives. As we mentioned, we, we have one more issue left to go before we're all said and done here, and despite my mentioned concerns about this ending, I'm extremely curious to see how they wrap this all up. So, following Absolute Carnage, which we looked at quite a bit, the Arkham Asylum of the Marvel Universe, Ravencroft Institute for the Criminally Insane, was left in ruins, so Marvel has been giving us one-shots, diving into its history. The first shined a light on Carnage and his family history, and this one brings our attention to Sabretooth, which is brought to us by Frank Thierry, Angel Unzueta, and Guillermo Sana. I apologize, Angel, I'm sure I butchered your name, but I, I just I don't know how to say it. <laughs> but I digress. Deep in the bowels of where the Institute once stood, we see a macabre laboratory with an assortment of strange subjects as Reed Richards, Misty Knight, Wilson Fisk the Mayor and John Jameson delve ever deeper into the mystery, when suddenly hands crawl their way through the ground as we transition to the past and the Revolutionary War. It's 1783 as we see the first Captain America laying a beating on the Redcoats before he falls in an explosion. Now this is a care of interpretation of Captain America that we've seen multiple times throughout history. Uh, generally speaking, it's it's Steve Rogers, Steve Rogers' great-grandfather. He has no powers, but he, he dons the guise of Captain America just to, just to inspire. At this point, we then step through time and we see what else was generated at this cursed site as we see the rise of Shumagorath and the spirit of vengeance and even an earlier secret invasion than the one we saw as we see Teddy Roosevelt, pre-president Teddy Roosevelt, is actually a scroll. That's why this land was there for the taking by Jonas Ravencroft, who founded the Institute. Needless to say, the surrounding population was less than thrilled to have the criminally insane so close to home, but succeed he did in erecting his Institute. Now, their screening process can definitely use some work, as we see one of their early patients was Sir Percy Scandia, the original Black Knight. He's not insane, though I suppose his story of being sent through time by Morgan Le Fay probably gave them reason to there. And to be fair, one doctor believes he might be on the level, but Dr. Essex feels differently. Yep, that's Nathaniel Essex, who we of course know better these days as Mr. Sinister. Now, that's not our only celebrity there, though, as we see Victor Creed, Sabretooth, has tracked down the man he believes killed his sister and his brother, Wolverine. 
Logan is being held on Essex's orders as he's finally able to play with his healing factor, but he barely has Creed on a leash as he really wants to tear into Logan. The Believer Doctor has had enough of Essex and attempts to get the lobotomized Logan out of there when, when Tooth intervenes. He has Dr. Russell in his claws when Logan manages to get his wits about enough, enough pops his claws, and makes his escape. But Russell is still there, trapped with Sabretooth, and just when Creed has her at his mercy, we see her secret as she turns out to be a werewolf and is only stopped by Essex's intervention. A fake note of resignation, and Sinister is free to dissect his new toy. Now, the source of the twisted creatures rising from the depths now identified. I mean, it's really not entirely Sinister's fault. It's almost like he has a compulsion to do these things, but... We jump back to the present as they try to fend off the horde. The press is too much, though, as they're forced to retreat, trapping the monsters behind them. But things are still fishy as Misty saw Fisk's face. He saw something he recognized, but the line of questioning is cut off by a fairly blatant threat from the mayor. So we're two issues into this series, and I'm really digging the Ruins series. So I'm looking forward to the next one, which is focused on Vlad himself, Dracula. And of course, in this week's X-Watch. So we've missed quite a bit in the X-Watch these last few weeks as they continue to drop issue after issue, but outside of an X-Watch only episode, it's probably going to be easier to check in on them as we can, even though that means skipping some issues here and there, but hey... If I don't recap everything, maybe you'll go out and pick them up and help support this relaunch that I'm absolutely loving. To that end, we're picking back up this week with Excalibur number 5 from Teeny Howard and Marcus 2. In the missing issues, our crew was joined by Richter, who regained control of his powers over the Earth with an assist from Apocalypse, and then he got unintentionally accepted to the Druidic Order based on his natural control of the Earth, as well as Pete Wisdom. Pete's a former member of the original run of Excalibur, as well as X-Force for a time, and he's basically a mutant super spy. He's trying to be a go-between for the Crown and the new Captain Britain, as Clan Akava has been fear-mongering against her and her status as a mutant, causing a lot of unrest in the masses at large. Oh, and remember when Shogo Jubilee's baby turned into a dragon? That was merely because they were in Otherworld, and unfortunately his fire breath burned through the barriers of reality, and now great mystical beasts are wreaking havoc on our world. This is definitely not helping Betsy's case in the face of Clan Akaba's accusations. This is where we find ourselves, as Issue 5 opens with Richter saving Gambit, who's plunging into the bowels of the earth, only to immediately be set upon by some of those aforementioned creatures. Things aren't going any better in London, as a fire-breathing Hydra is pushing Betsy's abilities to their fullest before we enter the mind of Rogue, who's still trapped in that enchanted slumber. She finds herself following this flaming wolf that leads her to a large X symbol, carved into the ground that's ringed by stone sentinel heads with an effigy of Apocalypse rears up from amongst them. On Earth, in the shadow of the lighthouse, tensions flare between Apocalypse and Gambit as the Cajun has caused a disruption in Apocalypse's plans. 
Even now, living amongst the X-Men, Apocalypse is still every bit the manipulator he always was, which again calls into question just how well this utopia will work out. But, I mean, that's not the fun of it, right? Deducing the wolf's identity as Rachel Summers, now known as Prestige, who Gambit had asked to poke around, Rogue finally wakes up just as Apocalypse puts Gambit down. She flies into a rage, and with Apocalypse's encouragement as it's the only way forward that he sees, he drains him completely, even further than she did so long ago to Carol Danvers back before she was Captain Marvel, absorbing his powers and, as we've seen before, surely some of his essence as well, which I'm sure will lead to some interesting story beats down the road. In the moment, however, tapping into the power that Apocalypse has been carrying for thousands of years, Rogue manages to seal Otherworld away once again, but as she's laying out Apocalypse's grand plan to put himself on Otherworld's throne, that we see the most apparent of changes in her as she's gone blue and now bears the markings so long associated with Ensabad Nur. Now, as is par for the course, this issue ends leaving me still intrigued by where the story is heading and I can't wait to catch up with the other X-Books in the coming weeks. But that's just so far away, so... Let's turn to something that we already know how it's going to end with Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars in this week's Comic Club. The Comic Club. Here we are now for our much-delayed look at Secret Wars by Jonathan Hickman and Asad Ribic. I guess thematically, the delay works as this ties in nicely with our dive into crisis as the multiverse is collapsing as worlds are being destroyed. But before we get to the end of the world, we flash briefly to the unlikely yet extremely powerful trio of the Doctor's Doom and Strange alongside Owen Reese the Molecule Man confronting gods. At, at the least, that's not how the Beyonders see themselves, and given their insane power levels, it's not that big of a stretch. Who would dare to confront the Beyonders here on their own realm in the heart of their power? And when you're wondering what mortal would have the hubris to challenge a god, there's one name perpetually at that top of the list, and his name is Doom. At this point in our neck of the woods, we see the two remaining Earths, the 616 and the 1610 universes, more commonly known as the core Marvel Universe and then, of course, the home of the Ultimates line. Misled by the evil Mr. Fantastic, the Maker, Ultimate Nick Fury launches everything he has onto the core world. And I mean, it's not just that they're suddenly the bad guys, but Fury believes it's one world or the other, and in that situation, there's no other option in his mind. The assault, however, is beaten back by the combined forces of the 616, and when the Maker makes his play, he unleashes his advanced machines as things again escalate into battle. While this is happening, Cyclops finally reaches his goal and he comes across the Phoenix Egg, which contains the power of the cosmic entity as he again plays host to the Phoenix Force. He no more than powers up when he's beamed aboard Mr. Fantastic's ships as they try to salvage as many heroes as he can before the world itself fractures. But despite their best efforts, the worlds collide and everything disappears in a blinding flash of light with a spectral doom watching on. The worlds have ended, and yet our story marches on as we witness the young men attempting to lift a hammer which has proven to be unmovable. 
one eventually does manage to lift Mjolnir, which, as we all know, means that we have a new Thor. But as his arrival is trumpeted by a large group of Thors, clearly things aren't where we left them. This newly minted Thor, being guided by a very Odin-looking one, is trying to get his feet under him when he's told to bend knee to the Allfather whom they serve, as he kneels before a giant effigy of the Mask of Doom. Here we see that Doom has firmly established himself as the creator. He's there in the mythology and no one remembers what came before and the Thor and the Thor force acts as his personal police force as they watch over the various kingdoms of the world. We get a brief stop with Alex Powers as he stumbles upon a crashed ship whose very existence does not align with the new world's history which throws Doom's very divinity into question. The Thors then go to the bar sinister to bring him in for questioning, which is when we get a peek at just how this new world functions. Here in the High Court of Doom, the proceedings are overseen by the Sheriff of Agamotto, Stephen Strange, with God Doom watching from his throne Yggdrasil, the world tree. Sinister attempts to weasel his way out of the charges, but doesn't seem to sway Strange, so rather than admit defeat, Essex challenges his accuser, Brian Braddock, to a trial by combat and is well on his way to victory when Doom himself intervenes. It turns out that the older Braddock, Jamie was up to some shady stuff as well, with Doom's initial inc inclination being to kill him, but his rage is cooled by his consort, Sue Storm. That's right. In this world, he finally has Sue and Valeria, her daughter, is Doom's. Clearly, he has no place for Reed Richards in this new order. Following the proceedings in court, Strange and Valeria discuss a fat ship that was found and how its carbon dating doesn't line up with history as they know it. It's from before the universe was remade, of course, as we witness Jamie Braddock's fate as he's cast down into the shield. Now, the shield is the barrier between kingdoms, which is basically a trench filled with all the dark things with no place in Doom's kingdom. Zombies, symbiotes, Ultrons, the Annihilation Wave itself, all roam its dark, untamed wilds, and Braddock goes in there fully expecting to die because that's what happens there. Their duty having been discharged to see Braddock killed, the Thors are then sent to keep the crash site locked down for investigation when the ship opens with death for the Odin Thor leading the way as the Maker, Thanos, Terax, Hela and others disembark, having managed to survive the chaos from the incursion, which, I mean, that's how they termed the worlds colliding in the lead-up. We come back to Doom, sitting through a daily report from Strange on the happenings of his world. I mean, he's omnipotent, not omniscient, but he finds the banality of it all tiresome. But here we begin to peel back the mystery of just what happened to bring us to this new world. They, they had worked together, saving bits and pieces of the various worlds that were destroyed in the incursions, forging them into this new battle world. And Strange himself could have ascended rather than Doom, but didn't want that kind of power. But aware of how close they came to being wiped out is why Steven fights so hard to guard that which remains. This little aside ends with them coming to a statue memorializing Molecule Man, who we still aren't entirely sure what's happened with, when they're interrupted by some bad news. Hurrying to the crash site, Strange mobilizes a search for the escaped Cabal before turning to a stowaway who caught shelter on the fleeing ship before the end as Miles Morales steps forward and rocks Strange's world even more as he remembers everything as it was before. We get a moment with Victor and Sue as we find out the fate of her brother Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. 
He had refused to accept Thanes and defied them, but rather than executing him, Doom is again swayed by Shutsu to show mercy, and instead, he made him the son to share his light with all. We also find out that despite his unfathomable power, Doom's face is irreparable, which I find odd as it was the first thing he fixed when he had the Beyonder's power in the original Secret Wars. But we'll get to that as we transition back to Strange and Spidey and Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, where he has yet another ship just like the one that the Cabal had used. The Thor traveling with them forces his way in, and lo and behold, we have more survivors as the crew with our Reed Richards also survived the incursions. Now, needless to say, they're not real happy with the new order of things, but Strange's rebuttal makes sense. Doom is phenomenal at playing God. I mean, let's face it, that's been his goal for 50 plus years at this point, so I mean, it makes sense. They, as in the Illuminati, which was the makeup of Reed Richards, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, I mean, various other members, they were kind of like the movers and shakers of the superhero world. The, anyway, the, they tried to find some way to stave off the incursions, but it was doomed to fail from that approach, so Doom, Strange, and Molecule Man killed the Guiding Hands, the Beyonders themselves, and took the power. Faced by the abyss of omnipotence, Steven backed away, and it was on to Doom to save everything he could. Neither side of the argument here is satisfied by the other, but as is often the case, things are afoot elsewhere that need attention. The Thors have tracked down the Cabal, and an epic battle rages between the two sides. One Thor goes to play his trump card and contacts Doom directly, but before he deigns to intervene, Strange and the others arrive to aid the Thors, and that's when Doom gives the situation his full attention, as the man he has searched his planet for for eight years, Reed Richards, has finally appeared. Doom warps directly to the site. His very presence on the field halts the battle, but as they question him, he responds with overwhelming power to illustrate just who he is now. Not the petty dictator of Latveria, but truly God now, which is readily apparent as he stands in the face of the full fury of the Phoenix. Realizing where things are heading, Strange acts, using his powers to scatter them to the winds so to keep Doom from slaughtering them all out of hand. He'll work to maintain the order because this is all that's left and must be protected, but he's still the man he was, and cold-blooded murder is something he just cannot allow. Doom's scared of Richards, and I mean, perhaps he should be after having stolen Reed's very life from him, is Strange's final words before Doom destroys him with a wave of his hand. His right hand, fallen by his own, we witness the funeral for Strange as he's given a statue next to the Molecule Man's with full honors from the Thor Corps. Here, though, we do get a vow of vengeance for the fallen doctor from Franklin Richards, who is, of course, with his mom and sister, aligned with Doom. It's important to point out that no one save Doom knows it was he who slayed the sheriff. Instead, he's pushing the blame on our newly returned heroes and, ironically, is having Valeria lead the hunt for her father that she's unaware of. In a contemplative mood, Doom enters a secluded location hidden in the statue of the Molecule Man, and in its depth, we see that Owen isn't dead, but rather kept in seclusion, and we get yet more bits of, to piece together this whole picture of what exactly has happened. <clears throat> As we saw in the original event and its sequel that we haven't actually covered, and probably won't, <clears throat> the Beyonders are, as a people, and I use that word loosely here, they're extremely curious about life. That's what's led to all of our interactions with them. 
Eventually, though, that curiosity was sated, so it was time to tear everything down and start again, which brings Reese into the picture. They made him as like their reset switch, a bomb built to destroy not just a universe, but the entire multiverse. Now, again, they're omnipotent, not omniscient, and they made an error by making their bomb a person with a will of his own. Choice, free will, if you will, was their error as Reese chose doom over them. They began to kill various versions of him, though he lost a bit of himself at each death, which also began to drive him mad. So, following that, they switched tactics and developed their own bomb with some of the various Owens and lured the Beyonders out of their safety and detonated this new bomb, killing the Beyonders, allowing them access to the power to save that which they could from the universe. As he leaves Owen, we get a bit of Valeria issuing orders to try and find out just what exactly happened with Strange before we cut to a grinning Thanos standing before the shield. Will he tear it down, unleashing the hordes contained within? Is this what Doom fears? I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Now, three weeks later, Doom's land is in turmoil as a number of the kingdoms are in open rebellion, but they managed to capture Corvus Glaive and Proxima Midnight from Thanos' Black Order, but are unable to find out what the others are planning, nor even where they are. Valeria is still hunting, but she's growing more unsure of things as she's sure she's being lied to, but dare she poke further into her father, into her god's business? We'll have to see about that, but at someone not at all intimidated by Doom is Reed Richards, either of them for that matter, as Mr. Fantastic is working right alongside his darker half, the Maker, as they try to form a plan. The Maker is ready to bring down Doom, but Reed is worried about the ramifications of killing God, so further study is necessary. Hence, he's got people out in the field as we join Spider the Spider-Man and T'Challa infiltrating Castle Doom en route to the Molecule Man's memorial where the detecting is the source of Doom's energy. Their search is interrupted by the extremely conflicted Valeria, who, while recognized by Peter, of course, she has no memory of them, but accepts that they were not responsible for Stephen's death, as that's what her own findings were showing. The spider enter Reese's sanctuary, where they're immediately win points with the constantly ravenous Molecule Man, thanks to Miles forgetting that he had a hamburger in his pocket. I mean, it's such a ludicrous incident, but it, I mean, it plays well here. Now, their hunt for the source of Doom's power now clear as that the Molecule Man is the conduit, the battery, if you will, for the Beyonder's power, which makes it much dicier to cut him off from it. Now, you might be wondering how they've escaped Doom's notice here on his home turf, and that's because he's busy digging into the newly sprung up prophet that's stirring up turmoil throughout his various kingdoms. He's called together his barons, trying to figure out just how this one man has fostered such a widespread uprising. Now, no, there are no easy answers forthcoming, so he orders them to deal with it before he runs out of patience. Meanwhile, old animosity are set aside as Namor and the Black Panther have managed to find Strange's hidden Isle of Agamotto. Now, inside, they are tested by the spirit of Strange, who gives unto them two items of power. The first of which is the Siege Courageous, which allows instantaneous transport anywhere at any time. And the other is a fully formed Infinity Gauntlet with the stones from the same universe as Doom's home and Doomstot. Hence, it'll only work there, but it may just have the power to tip the scales. 
Now, we stop briefly with Franklin being tucked into bed by Sue after a day spent fishing with his good buddy Galactus, and we see even more how Doom has twisted history in an attempt to erase his rival, Reed Richards, from the world. Now, according to Doom's history, Franklin Storm, Sue and Johnny's father, led them and Ben Grimm as the Fantastic Four before Doom saved everything. But in all of that, we, like young Franklin himself, wonder what became of Uncle Ben. But we soon find out as Thanos is urging him to break free from where Doom told him he needed to be. You see, here in this place, the thing is of mountainous proportions and he's actually the foundation, the basis for the shield. But with knowledge that Thanos is giving to him as to how things should be, he finally has enough and breaks free from the self-imposed shackles, shattering the shield as he stands to his towering height. Now clearly things are building quickly here as we start to hit this the final third of the series as the Prophet and his armies have reached Yggdrasil to tear down Doom. But who is this masked savior? It's probably not who you guess. It's the inhuman Maximus the Mad who has led them to war. Now Doom's barons are fracturing at the same time with first Madeline Pryor falling to Sinister before he in turn is brought down by Apocalypse's horsemen. That's not the only weakening of Doom's forces, though, as the young Thor that we watched rise has found out the truth, and the Thor Corps is at sort of a civil war of its own as it's split over the revelation. Now, the worthy, as the rebels call themselves, beat back the others as some split off, led by Jane Foster to take the fight to the false god. Things don't much improve on the battlefield as Baron Maestro, the giant evil intelligent Hulk, unleashes his World Breaker Hulks on the field. There's an awful lot of chaos springing up, but it's not just random chance as the Maker set this in motion to create a distraction, but there's concern that Maximus's mob can't go the distance, so replays his next card as T'Challa breaks down the barrier, trapping the horrors in the Deadlands outside the shield. But it's not just a vain attempt to unleash the dead to cause chaos, but rather he comes offering a chance at redemption via the Siege Courageous, and the zombies more are on board, ready to tear down Doom. The Reed ship, which is being flown by Star-Lord, is taken down by an errant Hulk as they make their move with the Maestro watching on when Giant Thing smashes his entire battleship from the sky. His push towards Castle Doom is halted, however, by Galactus, stepping up to defend his master with Franklin in tow. It's an exceedingly weird sight to see Ben at odds with Franklin, but when the truth comes out and Ben learns who Franklin is, the fight goes out of him and he refuses to battle Sue's son and ends up falling to Galactus. Sue is devastated at what she, her son just did, but Doom realizes what Ben's presence really means as the Annihilation Horde enters the field, having come through the break in the wall. Star-Lord is busy trying to salvage their ship so that they have a chance of an escape, assuming the Richardses succeed, when he gets caught by Doom's minion, the Black Swan, who easily overpowers Peter. He's definitely on the ropes when he plays his trump card, a little twig that morphs into probably the biggest Groot I've ever seen as he grows big enough to shatter an entire section of the castle. While that's going on, Valeria leads her mom back to the statues, ready to share the disturbing truth she's uncovered about Doom where they happen upon the reeds. Now there's a lot going on though as we hop back to the battle where Doom has come face to face with the mad titan Thanos himself. Now, I mean, you know Thanos. He's here just oozing confidence as he squares up to Doom, but it's completely and 
utterly misplaced as Doom rips out Thanos' spine in the very first engagement. That challenge met, Doom turns to Annihilus and orders him to have his horde devour his enemies. But before that can happen, however, the Siege Courageous opens, unleashing the zombie horde, seeking redemption, followed by T'Challa and the Gauntlet. Panther and Namor strike him down, but Doom's a god now and he merely pulls himself back together as the two of them wage battle across the realm simultaneously, fighting on the earth, in the sky, as well as in the heavens above. While those two throw down with the might of creation at their call, we jump back to the family reunion of strangers as the Reeds enter the realm of Reese. They barely begin when the Maker pulls a fast one and traps Reed in a temporal bubble, devolving him to his primate origins as he chastises him for his sentimental weaknesses. Who wants a weepy god after all? Yet another question that we get swiftly answered is Owen Reese does as he downs the Maker and restores Reed just before the final confrontation. The cosmic battle between Victor and Panther was a suitably awesome display of power, but even with the gauntlet, T'Challa falls and it's as Doom exhorts his victory that he realized that this was just yet another diversion as Doom shifts himself to the memorial. There, he's immediately bet by the anger and betrayal felt by the one thing that he truly loves Sue, but he has no time to dwell on it as he knows the architect of his shattered dream awaits him below. Enraged that this man is still meddling in his affairs now that he's a god, Victor's self-confidence in the situation is on full display when the final card is laid on the table. Reed didn't come here to beat Doom or really trick him, but rather to offer an alternative to the Molecule Man, who has found to be interesting as he, de as he denies his power to Doom, and the mortal enemies engage as they have countless times before as the two men, driven by the belief that their way is best. But, I mean, as always, the physical battle between the two it pales in comparison to the more philosophical divide, compounded by Victor's unfailing jealousy. Their verbal sparring back and forth leads Doom to the realization that Reed would have done a better job as God, but that changes nothing as he moves in for the kill. That realization, though, that they both agree Reed was a better choice, triggers Multiple Man, who transfers the power to Richards as, once again, the world is gone in a flash of light. But not before T'Challa uses the stones one last time to kind of help guide Wakanda's development in this new world that's getting ready to take state, and it sets the stage for their expansion into the stars. From there, we jump eight months into the future to what is now Earth Prime. This, see, the parallels between this and Crisis just keep popping up. If I didn't know the truth about my situation, I think I'd have played it this way. But anyway... What we're left with out of all of this is Miles is now being on the main Marvel Earth as the ultimate Earth is gone, at least as so we believe. And the Richards family are out to restore even the farthest corners of the multiverse with the power of Owen and Franklin working in U.S. and guided by the mind of Reed. It's a big job and would be the last time we'd see them for a few years as they worked on this ginormous task. Really, Secret Wars was exactly what I look for in these line-wide events that seem to pop up literally every time I turn around, and that's not something you can say about all of them. Outside of the core series, a lot of the tie-ins brought some really cool stuff to the table as we revisited some key universes from throughout Marvel's history. We didn't do them as I'd originally planned here, but I highly recommend you take a look at whichever ones might pique your interest. There's a lot of good stuff there. 
Personally, I particularly like the Old Man Logan run, which is what prompted my choice for next issue when I want to take a look at the original Old Man Logan arc from Mark Millar and Steve McNeven. As always, you can find it in the in Marvel Unlimited under the events reading list. I mean, this is yet another of my all-time favorite arcs, and it provided a tonal inspiration, if not actual story, for Logan, which, of course, was Hugh Jackman's finest performance in the role. So, let's go ahead and plan on that for next. Remember to hit me up through any of the methods we talked about at the top of the show, and remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.